very fancy, very fancy. And uh, Max plays in the band, and so you know, we got to stay for the whole game. So that means you don't get home till like, oh, and I, and I picked him up on the way home, so it was like 11.15 or something when we got home, way past my bedtime on a school night. And then Friday night, we went to bed early because Sam and I had to be at Prothro uh, up on Texoma at 8.45 on Saturday for camp. So we were outside for camp all day on Saturday, which was great. I didn't think we were going to get home until 10 o'clock, so I thought we were going to stay for the campfire. Um, and I was just, the Holy Spirit moved my youngest child and he was ready to, and he was ready to come home, which I was very grateful for because we still had a Notre Dame game to watch. So we turned it on at seven instead of 10, which allowed me to get more sleep than I otherwise was planning on getting. But then this morning, I mean, you know, alarm goes off at five on, on Sundays. And then we had this like fully packed morning, which was amazing. Like all the services were amazing. And then as soon as that was over, I had to change into my I'm a Cubs dad shirt because Sam had a game at one. So I had walked out, set up, set up some people at the fair and then wrapped it up, took food uh, to the game for the family because they had to get there earlier than I did. Then I got home. I mean, we, Max and I left, swung by the Go Juice place, Starbucks, and here I am. And then after this, I'm going to youth. So it's been a fun, packed weekend. <laughs> right, yeah, he said I'm young. Not, I don't always feel it on days like this, but it's all good. Okay, so, by the way, if you're wondering, the Cubs won 15-2. to two. It was a brutal game. I mean, f- for the other team. Uh, it was one of those, like, our team has played several years together, and they're pretty dialed in. This is a brand new team who's just figuring it out. Baseball is surprisingly complicated if you've never played before. There's a lot going on uh, that they weren't catching on to. So thank God for the five-run rule in every inning. That's all I can say. Uh, okay, so we are in Genesis. We've wrapped up the prehistory, and last week we talked about this seemingly simple statement that Walter Brueggemann um, uses to kind of capture what's going on in the prehistory, which is the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that is uh, that the creator... Only one, God, creates. It's God's primary action in the first 11 chapters. Creation, so there is a God, it's not us. And what happens in those early chapters is that we get consistently confused about who's in charge, who should be in charge. That really is kind of the story of the human predicament. Uh, But it shows up in a big way in Genesis 3, um, leading up to the flood. We don't get a lot of details about that, but clearly people were confused about this basic equation here. So God did this giant do-over in the flood, and then the Tower of Babel story wraps up that section with people still striving to be something other than uh, creation. And so now we're in the Abraham cycle. We're going to spend two weeks on the Abraham cycle. Um, That's the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar. Lot has an appearance in there, a couple stories Um, And there's a lot going on in this section. So what we're going to cover today are chapters 12 through 17, which covers the initial call of Abraham, a shift in the way that God uh, relates to humanity, and then um, there are a couple of of interesting stories. We're going to cover Ishmael today uh, as well. So God's purpose for creation, and I I think really you could make a pretty good case for, for this basic uh, assumption here from all the canon, Old and New Testament, 
But God's purpose for creation is uh, unity of creation and shalom in Hebrew, which means not just the absence of conflict. So it's not, it's not just peace in that sense, but it's a, a sense of wholeness and well-being that creation uh, should be able to have, <laughs> but has not had since the beginning. It's kind of the story of the prehistory, but that's God's desire. And so the whole canon from Genesis through Revelation is about God's ongoing efforts to um, make possible the unity and healing, wholeness, shalom of creation. When we get to the New Testament, they use, we'll use different words for that, but that's this, the general sense. And so for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, it's a swing and a miss by, by humanity on the whole possibilities of unity and shalom. And so God decides to try something new, beginning with Abraham. And uh, the story of Abraham and Sarah, is, it's also a very well-known story. We just finished a sermon series on it here, but I think most people know, if you've been around the church for a while, the kind of basic outlines of the story. We're going to read a fair amount of it this week and next. But the point is that it's going to be through Abraham and Sarah, which then ultimately becomes through Israel, that God will work to achieve God's purposes for creation. So uh, this family and their offspring, their descendants, are blessed by God, but not just to be blessed. They're blessed in order to be a blessing to all of creation. This will show up pretty clearly in the promises in Genesis, uh, but then... Like later in the Old Testament, we'll hear about how Israel becomes the, the stand-in for uh, the specific family of Abraham and Sarah. Does that make sense? The emphasis in this whole section is on faith. So in the early, in prehistory, it was, um, wasn't that overt. <laughs> it was about obedience. That's in the story of the garden. And the kind of basic decency, which we don't seem to be able to accomplish in the rest of the prehistory. Now, it's specifically about trusting that God is who God says God is, uh, which does, of course, echo back to the creator. <laughs> His primary uh, action here is creating creation, which is all of us. Okay? Uh, I think I mentioned this already, but the, the commentary that I'm reading along with our study is a, an older one, actually. This Brueggemann, I think the... Let me see on the yeah, 82. So this is an older commentary, but Walter Brueggemann is uh, kind of the pre- one, one of the preeminent Old Testament scholars for Methodists and mainline Protestants, and he wrote this commentary for preaching and teaching on Genesis. And I wanted to open up with something he wrote about this early section. So here's how, how Brueggemann puts the whole Abraham narrative, kind of frames it at the beginning. So the one, obviously the creator, the one who calls the worlds into being, now makes a second call, and this call is specific. The object is identifiable in history. Prehistory is, we talked about it's not science, it's not myth, but it's not, these aren't specific characters in history that we, like, in the same sense that Abraham and everyone who follows is. So the, uh, its object is identifiable in history. The call is addressed to aged Abraham and to barren Sarah. The purpose of the call is to fashion an alternative community in creation gone awry, to embody in human history the power of the blessing. It is the hope of God that in this new family, all human history can be brought to the unity and shalom intended by the one who calls. So this is 
God's second, I guess, second do-over <laughs> after the flood. Make sense? Okay, uh, chapter 12. I love this story. I love Abraham and Sarah both, and they are, as we'll read, uh, very imperfect characters. Now the Lord said to Abram, and this is just out of the blue, there's no frame of reference given, God shows up, Abram responds, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So I'm not just, I'm not just hooking you up. <laughs> I want you to carry out my purposes for creation, because I, the first 11 chapters haven't gone very well. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the whole, this is the chosen people. Right, a unique covenant. That's the other word I need to write up here that I haven't written up here yet. God makes a covenant with Noah, but this one uh, with Abraham is more specific. And then there's these three terrific words. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, at to, to the oaks of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country, on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. <laughs> but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you. <laughs> it's kind of it's interesting. That's okay. That's not very selfless. That's, not a, that's a very interesting marriage arrangement here. So, so that it may go well with me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why didn't you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you tell me she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and be gone. Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way with his wife and all that he had. So... Just like everywhere else in Genesis, there's a mixture of material in, uh, in this Abraham cycle. The Abraham cycle goes from uh, 12.1 through chapter 25, verse 18. It's a, it's a long section of the book. And there's some stuff that is as late as the priestly account. That's the, the exilic account. So that's very late. That's in the 500s B.C. 
There's some stuff that's very, very early, the Yahwist and, and the Eloist account. That's like the, the earliest oral tradition. And it seems like most scholars would parse that out such that uh, some of this older stuff, like about the whole thing with Egypt, seems to be kind of an older story told around the campfire um, with, I mean, honestly, less theological <laughs> material than some of the later stuff. I'm going to point out where we get to the covenant. There are two different covenant accounts with Abram. One is very clearly from the exilic period, and one is pretty clearly from the earlier material. But um, it's, what's interesting about the 12th chapter is you get this call out of the blue from Abram, and it's impossible for us to read this story without context. We, we know who Abraham is. <laughs> we know he's father Abraham. We know that he and Sarah are the paragons of faith in our tradition, certainly Abraham, because when you read the New Testament, the New Testament says Abraham is. And so we, we tend <laughs> to read this story and give him the benefit of the doubt every step along the way. But if we were just to have met Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1, we would have said, oh man, nine verses, he is killing it. Like he is just totally, he and God are in sync. And then there's this weird thing that happens in Egypt where he doesn't come off looking great. And it's not the only time he's not going to come off looking great. But um, what I like about that is that that's kind of the human condition, right? I mean, none of us are perfect. There's only one human ever lived as perfect as Jesus. So um, anyway, uh, that section about Abram and Sarai in Egypt is probably older and um, make of it what you will. Okay, chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He journeyed on by stages from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them living together for their possessions were so great that they could not live together. And there, were, there was strife between the herders of Abram's livestock and the herders of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites lived in the land. That's a signal, by the way, this is written much later, right? Because they're saying, back in the day, Canaanites were still around. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herders and my herders, for we are kindred. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will take the right. If you take the right hand, then I will take the left Lot looked about him and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to get to that story. So Lot chose him for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. eastward. Uh, there they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. Again, we'll get to this. We'll get to them. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Rise up, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. 
So there are two key components of this first offer of relationship. So the covenant that God's going to offer, the first thing is about land, and the second is, a, I mean, they frame it as offspring, but really, specifically, it's an heir. And it's an heir from Sarah and Abraham. So he's, he's 75 years old when the first call comes. 75 is young in our day and age. It was really old back then. And so he and Sarah had been dealing with this, I mean, barrenness is the way it's often put, um, this, their childless state for their whole lives. And I'm sure long, long ago had believed that, I mean, gods, the gods weren't going to bless them with an heir. And then this God, the God, shows up and says, no, no, no we'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. And... They're going to believe, and the promise is a dual promise, and these two imperfect people are going to do the best they can while they're waiting for a child. They get the land right off the bat, but the land doesn't mean anything if you don't have anybody to give it to, leave it to. Does that make sense? So 14, I'm actually uh, just going to skip over 14. There's some stuff in here about Lot that's, that seems to be uh, old material. There's a, like a genealogy type thing there. Um, there is the first tithe. We're coming up on stewardship season, so if you're interested, the first time the tithe appears in, in Scripture, canonically, is in 14, verse 20. This is the exchange between Abram and a king named Melchizedek. Abram gave him one-tenth of everything, this concept of giving a tenth to a powerful entity, in this case a king. It'll show up later. And then, in 15, we get the older of the covenant accounts, this is some mixture of the Yahwist account and the Elohist account. So J and E are the two sources here. So, after these things, the word, I'm in 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God. Uh, in Hebrew there, that's Adonai Yahweh. Um, that's... Uh, an address to God that you would often find in a prophetic uh, exchange, or like an exchange between God and the prophet. It's interesting that it shows up like that here, but that's the way Abram, that's how, what Abram calls God. Adonai Yahweh. What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That's some servant's kid. So the land, fine. But listen, I had plenty of stuff back where you called me from. That wasn't my main interest. <laughs> I actually want this. So what will you give me, God? It's interesting because he knows the answer to that. God made that clear call in 12, but he's anxious about it. And Abram said a second time, so this is a double inquiry, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. So he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. That verse 15.6 is a pretty central verse. It's one worth underlining, dog-earing. That'll come up in the New Testament several times. Hebrews makes reference to it and Paul does significantly. So what makes Abram righteous is that he believes. It's not anything he does. It's that he trusts God. 
that idea of righteousness changes throughout the course of the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Christian theology, we believe, I mean, you'll probably know this, but we believe we're made righteous by the cross. We're made righteous. <laughs> we, we, don't have our own, we don't get righteousness on our own. We put our faith in Christ. So it's faith also, but for us it's faith in Christ that puts us in a right relationship with God. So in Christian theology, righteousness and justification are pretty closely related, and justification just means a, a relative change. Before I put my faith in Christ, I am, um, well, I'm going to use the word condemned, okay, because these are legal terms, uh, is how it's most commonly thought of in the early Christian tradition. After I put my faith in Christ, I'm acquitted. So righteousness is something that God does for me on the cross through Christ. But for in, in Abraham's case, it's a matter of his believing God's promise. He's demonstrated it in the 12th chapter when he picked up everything and left. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, but here, however long has passed since chapter 12, it doesn't say. He's like, he's, it's not that he doesn't believe, but he's getting, he's like, I'm not getting any younger, God. When's this going to happen? Then God says to Abram, I am the Lord, is verse 7, who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? We're going to see this a lot with Abram. There's going to be give and take. And what's extraordinary about that, this is, and again, this is the older accounts that are kind of told around the campfire. What's extraordinary about that is that God engages with him. And, he, and God will actually back off a couple times based on Abraham's, Abram at this case, at this stage, his engagement with him. Uh, this is the same author, the same source that gave us Genesis 2 and 3, where God's playing in the dirt and makes Adam and then Eve and then shows up in the garden. God's walking through the garden one day like, hey, where y'all, where'd y'all go? Who told you you were naked? Like, this is a very, this is a God that's very engaged with humanity. So, in verse 9, he said to him, God said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So when you read this older account of the covenant with Abraham, Abram, and Genesis 2-3, I mean, they sound a lot alike. It's this very anthropomorphic God who's doing these extraordinary things. The flaming 
torch and the smoking fire pot. I don't know what to make of that. That's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool image. So everybody's familiar with these stories? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now it gets complicated. This is after 10 years now. So Abraham's 85-ish. That's a long time to wait. <laughs> it's a long time to wait for that promise. Because, again, he's got, he, he didn't really need this. What he really wants is this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's not the way it works, but that's what she says. Go into my slave girl, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. I mean, neither one of them come across looking great, right? I mean, this is not good behavior. But it's in the context of this delayed promise. So if his faith is reckoned to him as righteousness, I don't know. It's a little complicated to me. Does he really believe? Does she really believe? I mean, they packed up and moved, and, and they responded to God's call. But, you know, we like it to be on our time, not, not God's time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, we forget. Forgetting's a, forgetting is a very common human <laughs> sin. Or, um, going back to our, our prehistory stuff, we want to, we take control. When things don't happen on our time, we take control. We, we do what we think is the right thing to do instead of waiting for what God has said God will do. And I'm, I'm not unsympathetic because it was 10 years that passed. And, um, you know, 10 years is a long time for me. I'm sure it would have been a long time. He's way past expected living age right now. And, but the, the bottom line, the thing that had showed up in prehistory over and over again, that the creature doesn't like not being in control. <laughs> And tries to take things into their own hands. Even, even like the pinnacle of faith in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah, even they do that. Uh, and we can, hear, we can interpret that one of two ways. Either that's really depressing, <laughs> because even they do it, or it's very encouraging, because if we like to be in control, we can, you know, we can, uh, we know that that's in the context of, that's, of it being a hum, part of the human condition. But the bottom line is, this is not this is a terrible story. It's going to get worse. So verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Oh, um, that's, that kind of sounds like the garden, right? Where have you gone? I mean, God knows. But God's engaging with someone who's hurting. That's kind of, that's kind of God's thing. <laughs> Um, she said, middle of verse 8, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, 
Now you have conceived and shall bear a son and shall call him Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord. It's very unique in the Bible. Humans don't normally do that. God tells us what God's name is. God tells Moses what God's name is. But she names God. You are El Roy. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? It's very unique. I mean, Hagar is a fascinating character study. She's only, she only appears very briefly in these couple of chapters here. And there's the, the authors of these texts didn't give us a whole lot more to go on. But it's, it's a fascinating part of the story. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahoy Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now, in verse 17, we get the priestly account of the covenant. So, um, what, this is where circumcision is going to come up. And uh, I'm not saying that Abraham wasn't circumcised, but I'm saying that that would be a point of emphasis for a priestly author living in the exile when people were separated from the temple. Because what happens in the history of Israel is that when the temple is destroyed and uh, the first temple and the Israelites are taken to Babylon, then their entire religious identity had to be rethought. Because the old religious identity with the temple was all about sacrifice. Uh, It was a barbecue factory. (laughs) Um, And it was constant, 24 hours a day, uh, uh, sacrifice in the temple. Some of which became food, some of which did not. When that, when that locus of the religious experience where God was believed literally to have lived on the Ark of the Covenant between the mercy seat and the wings of the angel on top of it, um, in the Holy of Holies, like there was a very specific understanding of, of God's location. When that changed, then the way we would express it as Christians is that the Holy Spirit had to had to assure people that's not actually where God lives. <laughs> We're talking about the creator of the universe Really, he's, he's got better accommodations than that little, little space in the Holy of Holies. Uh, and the, 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 the focus of religious life became the law. And a key part of the law, of course, is the sign of the covenant, circumcision for men. Um, so all of the priestly material in the, Old Te- in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Old Testament, emphasizes these... Um, cultic practices, these religious practices that, that were the identity of the people. So the older account in 15, which is just this kind of anthropomorphic uh, uh, exchange between God and Abraham where he makes a sacrifice, uh, was written during the temple era, was put on paper during the temple era, post-Solomon probably. And now there's this other emphasis. Again, I'm not saying Abraham wasn't circumcised. I'm saying it's just a matter of emphasis. So we'll hear it as we, as you read it, as we read it. So chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. That's El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name 
shall be Abraham. For your name, uh, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. An everlasting covenant is crucial for a people who can't renew the covenant every day or every week or every year in the temple. So the language of this, if we were reading it in Hebrew and the flow and the kind of the cadences would sound a lot like Genesis 1. I mean, it's kind of this epic magisterial account of the covenant. Very different than the flaming pot and the, or the flaming torch and the smoking pot or whatever all that was. Um, Verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. (laughs) So I don't want to be too flippant about this, but this is kind of a twist. Right? I mean, that's kind of out of the blue. I mean, you, you didn't mention this before, God, but okay. <laughs> Circumcised. Interesting. Okay. Well, um, there's, a, there's a little one here, so I'm going to skip verse 11 there. Verse 12. Throughout your generation, every male among you shall be circumcised when he's eight days old, including the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money must be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off, that is a pun intended in Hebrew, from his people. He has broken my covenant. Paul makes all kinds of crass humor about that, with that kind of phrasing in the New Testament. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And Abraham could be forgiven if he's not like, okay, I've heard this now for a quarter of a century. <laughs> a quarter of my life you've been telling me this, so you've thrown this new requirement at me, which I guess I'm going to do, but what about it? When is this going to happen? I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. (laughs) I love that line. I love it. So Sarah, in the next chapter, we'll read it next week, gets in trouble for kind of giggling behind the curtain. Sarah, Abraham is in God's face. And he's like, "Uh okay, all right, fine. And he said to himself, can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. God said, no, but your wife, Sarah, shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac, which means, of course, he laughs. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. That everlasting covenant is a big deal for people in exile. That means the destruction of the temple cannot keep God's promise from being honored. And it, like so much of, even here in the earliest chapters of the, the, the way we receive the, the Old Testament, that the theological, um, like kind of the existential uncertainty around the destruction of the temple is, is already here. 
So we've, this is a later editor has added in some of this material to emphasize this particular part of the covenant because it's so crucial that God's people in Babylon not feel unmoored from God because they don't have the temple. The, ever, the covenant is everlasting, and there are signs of the covenant that we can honor, whether we're in Babylon or Plano or Jerusalem. That's vitally important. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around that because that's not, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe the Holy Spirit's always with us. Like we don't have this existential anxiety about where God lives. But for the authors of this particular version or uh, section of Genesis, it was very real. So God continues, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took his son Ishmael and all the slaves born in his house and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And his son Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, slaves born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised, circumcised with him. Conflict, is that the right word? That's not resolved still. I mean, you, you know who Ishmael is. So Muslims trace their lineage to uh, Abraham through Ishmael. Christians and Jews trace their lineage to Abraham through Isaac. We're all sons and daughters of Abraham, biblically. <laughs> um, Next week, we're going to get into the part, what the, the fate of Ishmael, what ha- ends up happening to Ishmael. But the promise, according to, according to the canon as we have it, is that 24 years into this relationship, the thing that Abraham and Sarah wanted most is still not delivered. That's a great question. Yeah, so the, the question, uh, if you didn't hear it, was, so we've got throughout these from 12 to 25 um, in Genesis, we'll, we'll have several accounts of Abraham not looking great. Abraham kind of pushing back on God. Uh, Sarah, obviously, I would say demonstrates some lack of trust with the whole issue, uh, the whole saga of Hagar and Ishmael. Um, does God, like theologically speaking, why does God not say, you know what, I've done a do-over once, <laughs> and it was pretty spectacular, so how about if I just call somebody else? It's a great question. And I, I think the... Uh, the word that will be used throughout Judeo-Christian history is the promise, that God is faithful to the promise. Even if we're not faithful to the promise, God remains faithful to the promise. Even when we stray, even when we turn our back, even when we seem to run away. <laughs> and for, for Christians, it's that that invitation to a relationship with Christ is always there, no matter how hard we push God away. Now, as Methodists, we believe in free will, and so we believe we have the the God-given ability to say no. What God never demonstrates is uh, a propensity to give up on that offer, which is pretty awesome. For I mean, the word that Methodists would use, obviously, is grace. Abraham and Sarah are promised through this covenant relationship, land and an heir. The idea is that they're blessed to be a blessing to restore God's purpose for humanity, which is huma- uh, unity and shalom. And the creator never does give up on that promise, ever, which is a spectacular theological promise, statement, um, doctrine. 
Yeah, that is a that is a that is a key difference between the creator and creation. We are all about conditionality. God is all about unconditional offers of relationship and transformation. Yeah, great. I mean, that's really good. That's really powerful theology. Let's go here and then here. Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, biologists would probably argue with that too. I think scientists. So, I think the. Um, the question was about the ages of characters in the prehistory versus ages of character now, like Abraham and Sarah. Like that seems old to us. Uh, I mean, not old, but seems old for having babies to us. But in the context of the prehistory where Methuselah lives, you know, centuries, 800 and some odd years. What, what, so I think theologically, uh, people would make the, I think the argument has been made that what the authors are saying is that in the post-flood era, life is much shorter than in the pre-flood era, that there was something um, like unique about that pre-flood era. And again, it's not science for us. It's not, we don't read it literally. But theologically, the, the, there's a, a difference kind of qualitatively and certainly quantitatively in life before and after the flood. When God, does, when God has this spectacular do-over, the terms change a little bit. That's what I've heard. Let me go over here and then I'll go to Yeah, so that's a question about doubt then. Um, we're... <laughs> that's, I think that's kind of what the teaching, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I, so... Yeah, God can handle us expressing to God whatever it is we're feeling, for sure. And if, if part of that is the doubt, which I think is a natural part of faith development, a natural wrestling that most, I think most people probably go through at some point or another to some degree or another, um, that God's not going to give up on us just because that. Again, here's where the analogy of a parent is so helpful. When, when kids hit their, teen, I was youth minister for many years, and when the kids hit their teenage years, there is a self-differentiation that they have to do in order to be healthy adults. And that can feel to a parent like rejection. It can feel like um, estrangement. It's not, that's not necessarily what's going on. Ideally, it's not what's going on, but it can feel that way. And a parent doesn't give up on the kid when they're going through that, right? We, just, we, we let them work through it and, and become the person that they were, that I would say God intended them to be. I think there's some of that too with God where, you know, ultimately we... Uh, the richest faith is the one that's claimed as our own. And that has to go through some kind of refining, to use biblical language. And if that includes some doubts along the way that we wrestle with, um, Thomas, it worked out fine for Thomas in the Gospel of John. And I think you're exactly right about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like every, I, I just, I'm just going to put it this way. Everything in the first 11 chapters of Genesis I read with a grain of salt when it comes to like details of numbers. Um, so <laughs> I can't help but think, no disrespect to any 75-year-olds in here, that that's pretty old to be having babies. Um, was their concept of a year different? So, you know, we've certainly gotten better at keeping time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, this, this does go back to, though, um, the point is, uh, well, there's, there's the, the theological questions that are being asked and the theological concepts are, that are being presented um, are more important, I, I think, for us than the details of this kind of stuff. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, that's a great question. So was it an editor that said, that added the bit about, fine, God said you're only going to live 120 years. So there, isn't, there is a sense in which we're all dependent upon the editors who put these books together. Now, what we would say is that they are guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, but there's this tension always in these texts between what is humanity's, what's human and what's divine. There's a great, so there's a thing called the, um, and I, I love, like, I, I love, gosh, I love this kind of stuff. So, <laughs> I'm going to embrace this for a minute. When we talk about Jesus, there's something called the Chalcedonian definition. And that's talking about at the Council of Chalcedon, I think it's 451, where the church came to the theological and philosophical conclusion that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. I mean, that was a turning point moment in Christian theology. We settled it. If you didn't believe that, you could believe whatever you wanted to, but you weren't Orthodox Christian at that point. So is he fully human or is he fully divine? What's the answer to that? Yes. The answer is yes. And I think, for me, that's a helpful way of understanding Scripture. Is it fully human or is it fully divine? Well, yeah. It's, it's, yes, it is. It's easier for us to put the New Testament because we know Paul wrote seven of those letters for sure. There are 13 of them that are, are, um, that are attributed to him. Those other six were probably written by students in his name. But regardless, there's a historical figure who we know, who's like on, in the Roman record, who wrote these letters. And there's a fair amount of emotion, in some cases vitriol, in those letters when he's writing to his opponents. And like... Paul is responsible for the most important theology in Christian history, and yet it shows up in this very human package. So is it, which is it? Is it fully human or fully divine? Well, he, there's no question Paul was writing by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's also no question the Holy Spirit didn't edit everything out. Because <laughs> you can read him in Greek and think, well, oh my gosh, how is that in the Bible? Like, if we actually translated some of the stuff he wrote, um, the way, you know, like in the vernacular, the, our modern vernacular, we'd be shocked at some of the stuff he said. But... Uh, I, think, I think, for me, that's always been a helpful way to understand it. That uh, the Word of God, capital W, Jesus, the Word of God, is revealed in the words of Scripture. And the words of Scripture are, they come down to us, first of all, through a bunch of, a bunch of authors whose identity we do not know, assembled by a bunch of editors whose identity we do not know, in languages that none of us speak, so then we're relying on translations of those words. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of, like, mediation that's happened since their origins around the campfire, in the cases of Genesis, to now. And what we believe is that the Holy Spirit is present at the writing, at the editing, <laughs> at the assembling, hopefully at the interpreting or translating. And we know for sure, I mean, it's the promise of the Holy Spirit that, that the Holy Spirit's with us as we read them. Um, so, I, like, that's a really super healthy way to read the Bible, in my opinion puts some responsibility on us <laughs> to read it in an informed way, in a faithful way. Any, any other thoughts? Yes, sir. Say again? Uh, well, so, for the promise? Yeah. Uh, there, so, um, how many people in here have been to Israel? As what, here's one thing that shocked me. Like, when you're up around Galilee, uh, I mean, that land is incredibly verdant in a part of the world that's largely not. And so you have this uh, this 
this agriculturally rich swath of land, you know, between deserts, basically. So, um, I mean, I think God had a good eye for <laughs> for what was sustainable land holdings. Yeah, please. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Crescent. Yeah, Golden Crescent. Oh, yeah. It was the crossroads. All right, exactly. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely the, the highway between Africa and Asia, that part of Asia, and ultimately what became Europe. Yeah, for sure. God's no dummy. It's location, 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 man. <laughs> he cer- <laughs> well, he was there at the beginning. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, okay, so next week we're going to read 18 through the end of the Abraham cycle, which is 25, eight, uh, chapter 25, verse 18. And I'm going to close today. You got, y'all have heard me with this poem before, but it's so good. And as I said, I'm, this is a 20-year teaching plan, so I, I'll be well into retirement before I teach Genesis again. <laughs> and so I'm going to use this one more time because it's so good. It's called The Call of Abraham. This is by... Um, He's a Benedictine monk named Killian McDonald who started writing poetry when he was 75 or 76. And this is called uh, The Call of Abraham. Talk about imperious. Without a, may I presume, no previous contact, no letter of introduction, this unknown God issues edicts. This is not a conversation. Am I a nobody to receive decrees from one whose name I do not know? I have worshipped my own God. To you, I had addressed no prayers, but quick, like sudden fire in the desert, I hear go. At 75, am I supposed to scuttle my life, take Sarai, place my arthritic bones upon the road to some mumbled nowhere? Let me get this straight. I will be brief. I summarize. In ten generations since the flood, you have spoken to no one. Now... Like thunder on a clear day, you give commands. Pull up my tent, desert the graves of my ancestors, leave Haran for a country you do not name, there to be a stranger. God of the wilderness, you promise all peoples of the earth will be blessed in me. You come late, Lord, very late, but my camels leave in the morning. Isn't that great? Awesome. All right. Thanks, y'all. God bless. Go in peace.